Amen. Thanks, Jerry. So this morning, um, last week, uh, if you were if you were here, or if you tuned in, uh, you heard Jay uh, talk about the what we're going to be studying during the month of July, and that is faith. Um, Jay uh, is going to be taking a look at a few different characters that we see in Scripture whose faith was remarkable. And today, what I'm going to do though is uh, is talk a little bit more about kind of the concept of faith. A couple of weeks ago, I had the pleasure of uh, sharing uh, of a uh, sermon in, down at a friend's church, a prodigal church in Carson City, and um, there was a passage out of Hebrews 11 that they had asked me to speak on, and it was kind of following up to what their pastor, uh, Fred, had been, had been uh, sharing. So today I'm going to share a lot of the same kind of ideas, but I wanted to include a couple of his notes um, before I have uh, before I have Diane come up and read the scripture for us, and um, some of the things that that Fred had to say that I agreed with is that faith has kind of become somewhat of a vanilla term. It's kind of used in very generic terms without a whole lot of definition. Um, another thing that he said was that faith is not just part of our faith, and uh, and that's the idea that I'm really going to talk about more today, but that. Apart from faith, we've got nothing, that we can see nothing, that even though it's kind of this, uh, this nebulous concept, when we look in the Word of God, when we look into the Scriptures, as we're going to do today, what we see are very concrete terms used to describe faith, um, specifically substance, evidence. Um, and so, as, uh, as Diane reads through Hebrews chapter 11 for us this morning, be thinking about this idea. Uh, it, it, wouldn't it be nice to have a more concrete uh, evidence more often, not only about our faith, but about a lot of things in life? Or is that too easy? Um, so I'm going to invite my good friend and elder, Diane Belhars, to share the word of the Lord with us. Thank you. Hear the word of the Lord. Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he has died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she was con- 
since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Though Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what they were promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, 
they should not be made perfect. Amen. Thank you, Diane. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the power that's contained in its pages. And God, we thank you for the faith um, that you give us. Thank you um, for the way that you reveal yourself to us. And God, I pray that this morning, God, that I would be faithful uh, to your truth. God, I have every reason to believe that you'll be faithful as always to speak to our hearts, to give us ears to hear things that uh, you want us, that we need to hear. And so be with us now. I ask it for your son's sake and in his name. Amen. So as I mentioned, the, uh, the idea of faith is sometimes kind of a nebulous idea. And but when we, when we look into the Bible, what we, what we don't see is any, um, any shadow of, of what faith actually means. What we see are words like, like I said before, substance and evidence. The idea that concrete evidence accompanies faith is, is all throughout Scripture, and it's all throughout Hebrews chapter 11. And so I asked the question earlier, wouldn't it be nice to have concrete evidence more often in life? Or is that too easy? So here's what I'm getting at. So what do we do when things are clearly defined or things are unquestionable? Uh, simply put, we don't question them. If they're unquestionable, we don't question them. We don't dig in. We don't ever seek to know more. We don't dissect them. And that's why I think that faith, as we understand it, is kind of a double-edged sword. Because Paul writes in Ephesians that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and not not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's just a remarkable idea. It's unimaginable that, that God, through his grace, would give us faith to believe in him, faith to save us. Uh, years ago, I was leading a junior high Bible study uh, with some friends of mine, uh, Roy and Leanne Slate, in their in their living room. It, it uh, eventually kind of blossomed into a, just a huge group of about 40 or so junior hires. And um, whenever we would open up the Word of God, um, some of the insights that junior hires have and that kids of all ages have are pretty remarkable. And when we came to this passage in particular, there was a young man named Zach. We asked uh, around the room, hey, what do you, you know, what do you hear God saying here. Um, and what his succinct answer to that question was, was that we didn't do anything to earn it, so we can't brag about having it as it pertains to faith. It was a gift from God. We don't brag about having it. We don't get arrogant about having it. If we look around and we see other people who may not have faith, uh, we have to remember that it's nothing that we've done in the first place to earn faith. We didn't earn salvation. This is not a works-based faith. Um, but faith is going to be accompanied by works. And so our goal is to live our lives in such a way that other people around us would see our faith in action, that they would learn more about the God who is the author and sustainer of that faith, and that as they do that, that they would fall in love with him. I've mentioned a few times before that every preacher, I think, kind of has one sermon. And, um, and my one sermon is this, is that our job as Christians, our job is to help people to see at God for who he really is. Because when God is seen for who he really is, he's irresistible. That is the fruit of our faith. That is our faith lived out in action, and that should be the result. 
So again, when things are clearly defined, um, or if our perception is that they're clearly defined, either way, um, what happens when things are uncertain? We take them for granted. And faith is something that we take for granted quite a bit. Um, but I was, uh, I was reading a devotional uh, that I go through from time to time. It is uh, by uh, Pastor John Piper. It's called Taste and See. And there is a chapter in here that I'm going to read in just a moment that I think illustrates the, the uh, concept really well about something that we take for granted. So if you would indulge me, it's a little bit of a long chapter, but I think, it's, uh, I think it, again, illustrates the point very well. And this is what the chapter is called. The Great Work of God. Rain. It's a Thanksgiving meditation on Job chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, which read, But as for me, I would seek God, and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives, he gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the field. And this is what the devotional says. If you said to someone, my God does great and unsearchable things, he does wonders without number, and they responded, really? Like what? Would you say, like rain? When I read these verses from Job recently, I felt at first the way I did on hearing some pretty bad poetry that went something like this. Let me suffer, let me die, just to win your hand. Let me even climb a hill or walk across the land. Even, I would suffer and die to have your hand, and even walk across the land, as if walking across the land were more sacrificial than dying. This sounded to me like a joke. But Job isn't joking. God does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth. In in Job's mind, rain really is one of the great unsearchable wonders that God does. So when I read this a few weeks ago, I resolved not to treat it as meaningless music lyrics. I decided to have a conversation with myself, which is what I mean by meditation. Is rain a great and unsearchable wonder wrought by God? Picture, if you will, as a farmer in the Near East, far from any lake or stream. A few wells keep the family and animals supplied with water. But if the crops are to grow and the family is to be fed from month to month, water has to come from another source on the fields. From where? Well, the sky. The sky? Water will come out of clear blue sky? Well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles and then be poured out in the fields from the sky and carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 2,323,200 cubic feet of water, which is 17,377,000 536 gallons, which is 144,735,360 pounds of water. That's heavy. So how does it get up in the sky and stay up there if it's so heavy? Well, it gets up there by evaporation. Really? That's a nice word. What does it mean? It means that water stops being water for a while so it can go up and not down. I see. Then how does it get down? Well, condensation happens. What's that? The water starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles between one one hundredth and one ten thousandth centimeters wide. That's small. What about the salt? The salt? Yes. The Mediterranean Sea is salt water. That would kill the crops. So what about the salt? 
Well, the salt has to be taken out. Oh, so the sky picks up millions of pounds of water from the sea, takes out the salt, carries the water, or whatever it is when it's not water, for 300 miles, and then dumps it, now turned into water again, on the farm? Well, it doesn't dump it. If it dumped millions of pounds of water on the farm, the wheat would be crushed. So the sky dribbles the millions of pounds of water down in little drops. And they have to be big enough to fall for one mile or so without evaporating, but small enough to keep from crushing the water or the wheat stalks. How do all these microscopic specks of water that weigh millions of pounds get heavy enough to fall, if that's even a way to ask the question? Well, it's called coalescence. What's that? It means the specks of water start bumping into each other and then join up and get bigger. And when they're big enough, they fall. Just like that? Well, not exactly, because then they would just bounce off each other instead of joining up if there were no electric field present. What? Never mind. Just take my word for it. I think instead, I will just take Job's word for it. I still don't see why drops ever get to the ground, because if they start falling as soon as they're heavier than air, they'd be too small not to evaporate on the way down. But if they wait to come down, what holds them up till they're big enough not to evaporate? Yes, I'm sure there's a name for that too. But I'm satisfied for now that by any name, this is a great and unsearchable thing that God has done. I think I should be thankful. A lot more thankful than I am. So thanks for indulging me. Uh, when I was little, you know, in, in Reno, I guess we don't take rain as for granted as in a lot of places. You know, when I was little, I grew up in rural New Jersey, and we, would ha- we had this chant that we would say, we'd say, rain, rain, go away, come back another day, because rain was inevitably going to cancel whatever fun we had planned for the weekend. So but the point being that we take things that are miraculous for granted on a regular basis, including our faith. And so, again, when things are, are clearly defined, when we have blind faith, um, we tend to take them for granted. We don't want to dig in. We don't want to know more. And so, what are some of the other things that we take for granted? We take God's grace for granted. We take the faith that he's given us, like I said. Sometimes we even take the conclusion of what will happen in our own lives for granted. We think we can put our lives on autopilot. We think that we can live any way that we want to, and that everything is just going to kind of magically work out. And that's just not reality. You know, as, as we continue through Paul's letters, he says that Christians are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation and faith, for that matter, is not just a one-time occurrence. It's a process, and it's one that we engage in by pursuing obedience. We should realize the significance of our relationship with God. Though his yoke is easy and his burden is light, there is a weightiness to it. So in talking about taking things like faith for granted, we make wrong assumptions. The reason we make wrong assumptions is because, because it, as it pertains to faith, it, it may just be because we've been giving something that we didn't have to work for. It might, it might be that simple. It might be that, that we don't see the gravity of it because we didn't do anything to earn it. But that is, couldn't be further from the truth, that, that faith is insignificant because we didn't earn it. Um, one of the most well-known verses on faith is found in the book of James. And it says that faith without works is dead. We're actually going to read that passage in a few moments. But before we get to this idea of faith being dead apart from works, uh, what I want to emphasize again is that when we have unanswered questions, we're more inclined to pursue understanding. And when we have blind faith, we're not usually so inclined. 
At the root of our faith is a relationship with an awesome and powerful God, a God whose thoughts are not our thoughts, whose ways are not our ways, a God who is alone wise and who is able with his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. This is a God worth pursuing. Though he's too great for me to understand, he is the author and sustainer of our faith. And he is more desirable than anything this life can give and anything that death can take away. You may have heard a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. It gets mentioned from time to time out of his book, Mere Christianity. The greater context of the quote is this. It says, the Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the other hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they were only a kind of copy or echo or image. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and help others to do the same. So Lewis had a lot to say about the idea of desire. The topic of my sermon, uh, if you saw in the, in the bulletin, is the desirability of faith. And there is a phrase that will come up from time to time as I'm speaking, and that is this, that there is nothing more desirable to desire than God. We can desire a lot of things, but even the, the desire to know God in itself is desirable. There's a German word, uh, Zenzucht, which is uh, out of uh, just a, a quick online definition for Zenzucht is this. It says, it's a noun that's translated as longing, desire, yearning, or craving. Some psychologists use the word Zenzucht to represent thoughts and feelings about facets of life that are unfinished or imperfect, paired with a yearning for ideal alternative experiences. So when, when Lewis referred to it, um, he referred to this unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. So from what I gather, um, most ways that we can explain this concept fail to convey the desirability of the longing itself. If we, it, it's, uh, we get so much more out of it when we ask questions, when we dig in, when we feel a, a yearning to go deeper, to know more, there is a desirability to that yearning. And so this longing, Zenzucht, is how Lewis described joy. And I think it's a really beautiful way to articulate it, that there is, there is something that we desire that this earth can't satisfy. There's something that we desire that this earth can only awaken in us. And as I mentioned before, it's our job to awaken it in others. It's our job to accurately portray God in such a way that people would want to know him more. So our joy 
is only made full in Christ. There's nothing more desirable to desire than him. So if I haven't been clear about this connection, you might be wondering why all this talk of joy and desire when this is supposed to be a message on faith. Well, I'm glad you asked. The scriptures are replete with examples of the cause and effect relationship between faith and joy. And this is what that relationship is. When we taste faith, we should desire it even more. And the more we taste, the greater the desire grows. That is what it means to mature in our faith. And that is not something that we can make happen on our own. That is a gift from God. Again, nothing is more desirable to desire than God. So back to the idea that we talked about at the beginning of the, uh, of the, the passage about faith as evidence. And I, I mentioned the, the passage out of James that uh, talks about faith and works. And in that passage, um, we see an example of, uh, a direct example, which I'm going to read it in just a moment, uh, of faith being enacted uh, and the, the the outflow of that faith is charity, which is certainly a, a great attribute of faith. It's definitely a great fruit of faith, but it's not the only one. And I think sometimes we make a mistake of saying, you know, faith in action uh, means just being charitable or being kind. Uh, it means a lot more than that. It means that, you know, the passage that we read out of, out of Hebrews 11, for the people who did great and amazing things, those, those actions demonstrated their faith. And that's what the author of Hebrews wanted us to see. There were also people that uh, were, were, were confronted with, with horrible tragedy, uh, whose lives were even ended because of their faith. That is also faith in action. And so, um, so let me read this passage out of James for you, and, uh, and you'll see what I'm getting at. It says this, this is out of James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled, and it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, uh, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers sent out uh, and sent them out by another way? For as the uh, body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Two examples that James uses there are directly out of our passage in Hebrews. You have Abraham and you have Rahab. Look at the faith that they exercise. But a lot of times when we, when we take that, you know, faith without works is dead passage, we just, we, it fails to convey other meanings or other examples of faith in action. And so that's kind of where we're headed now is what does it look like when our lives are characterized by faith? 
And um, like I said, the passage here mentions that charity is an example of faith put into action, but evidence of faith goes far beyond that. Have you ever found yourself uh, bargaining with God? Is what I would call it. Uh, for instance, if you you know you you might pray to God, you say, "Well, God, if if you give me this job, I'll believe in you." Or God, if you heal my daughter, I'll believe in you. Or God, if you make my life easy, I'll believe in you. We have we have all these um, all these different things that we, we, we think that we can uh, manipulate God into, you know, it's kind of like he's like a genie. We rub the lamp and then we just give him our wishes. And then we say, oh, well, if you give me my heart's desires, then I'll believe in you. Uh, that's not how faith works. And I think the implications of thinking like that, um, I think there's a lot of negative implications of thinking like that, I should say. And what we're trying to do at that moment is we're trying not to live by faith, but we're trying to live by sight. And that's not what we're supposed to do. The other thing that we do, I think when we do that, and, and maybe this is a little bit more subtle, but I think we tend to cheapen the faith of those who suffer. I think that suffering is a, is a huge part of faith. When we read through Hebrews chapter 11, we get to this part in, about halfway through verse 35 where there's a dramatic shift and so let me, let me show you what I'm, what I'm talking about. So we, we basically we go from evidence of faith being God's miraculous intervention leading to vis- victory, like is in, in uh, I'll, I'll just start in verse 33. It says this, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So that's, that is the, uh, that's the nice side, right? That's the, that's the happy side. I mean, the, the, the stops the mouths of lions. Think of David in the lion's den or, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the fiery furnace. All these heroes of the faith that we are familiar with from, um, probably from Sunday school lessons of, of, uh, our childhood. And then we go from that to this. By faith. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went out in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. I mean, think of... I mean, I, I can't imagine the kind of persecution that Christians uh, have to endure around the world. But you see examples like Isaiah, who was sawn in two. You can't imagine a, a more gruesome way almost to die than being cut in half. And this is Isaiah. You know, Isaiah is, there's nobody greater than Isaiah in the Old Testament. He's a hero of the faith. And his faith led to, to death. It led to persecution. It led to death. So essentially, from 35A to 35B, we go from escaped the edge of the sword by faith to killed by the sword by faith. That is a dramatic shift, and it's one that we need to take note of. Our faith and our relationship with God is not meant to be easy or simple, but man, do we have it good. 
We have it so, so good in this country. We have it good by being surrounded by people who share our faith, people who love God. God, is, God has been very, very good to this church and to many others. And it, and, and it makes, sometimes it makes for pretty wimpy believers, it makes for pretty wimpy faith, because we've never had to endure anything for our faith. And that's probably minimizing it. I don't mean to do that. But I think that in the grand scheme of things, none of our lives are on the line for what we believe. And if we, if, if we say, if we kind of, uh, you know, posture that we would be willing to die for our faith, we'd be willing to sacrifice for our faith, I think we can, we can aspire to that, certainly. But I think what we need to do is we need to look at how we're willing to live currently for our faith before we, before we would say that we'd be willing to die for our faith. Like I said before, God's promise is not for us to have easy lives. He doesn't say, I will make you healthy and wealthy. What he says is, I will give you so much of myself that you don't need health and that you don't need wealth. That God is better than anything that this life can give or anything that death can take away. That shift in verse 35 is where that's delineated. The best things that life can give, victory, riches, you know, honor, fame, fortune, all of these things, God rewards people who have faith and he empowers them to do amazing and miraculous things. Shift, death, torture, all these things happen by faith. But God is the common denominator of all of their faith. God is better than anything that life can give or that death can take away. There is nothing more desirable to desire than God. So it's not the strength of our faith, by the way, does not come from, the, the, the strength of our faith is not where the power comes from. It's the object of our faith. I'll say that again more clearly. It's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that gives it power. So this is how we can say, whether I live or die, blessed be the name of the Lord. And not only whether, but also in what condition. How do I live? How do I, how do I suffer? What am I, willing, what, am I, what am I willing to walk through? I had a, a, a pretty um, vivid uh, lesson taught to me about 10 years ago, but I still remember it pretty vividly because my wife and I were on our way home. We had been living in Iowa for a little while, and we were on our way back to Reno with all of our worldly possessions in a trailer behind us in our Suburban. And uh, about, I don't know, we were like maybe an hour or two into the, into the drive, we had a, a tire blew out on the trailer. And uh, I was very upset, of course, so I got the spare tire out, put it on, we headed down the road. Uh, a little while later, we had another tire blow out. I only, I only had one spare. So, um, so we ended up in the middle of nowhere, just, there was, a, there was a hotel, by God's grace, there was a hotel there that took dogs, we had our dog with us, and... Uh, I remember sitting in the hotel just thinking, you know, for one, um, you know, when, it, when a tire blows on a trailer, that's a, that's a dangerous kind of situation. So there was, that, there was that fear that was a component of it. There was also going to be some added expense to uh, getting the repairs done, especially out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, our trip, our, our expected return time back to Reno, that was out the, out the window now. Um, 
I was just so frustrated. Things just weren't going the way that I wanted them to go and the way I had planned. And I was thinking, as I'm, as I'm in the hotel room, just almost on the verge of tears from frustration, I was thinking, you know, God, we, we, we prayed, God, would you, would you please give us a safe drive? Would you, you know, give us an uneventful drive, a smooth drive? And what, what struck me as I was thinking that was that essentially what I had prayed without saying it out loud was, God, I want an easy drive, not a drive that'll help me to rely on you. Um, we pray those things a lot, maybe not in those words, but think of the things that are a, big, that are a part of your prayer life. Um, if, I, if I'm uh, honest, my prayer life mostly consists of, uh, you know, when, when I do pray, it's usually, I want something from God. I want God to do something. And, and usually I'll throw a few bones in there and say, you know, God, thank you for being great. Thank you for all the great stuff you've given me. And by the way, uh, we'd really like this new house or we'd really like this new whatever. And essentially what, we, what I find myself praying more often than I should is, God, give me, a, give me an easy life. I don't, don't give me a life that's going to force me to rely on you. And that goes back kind of to the wimpy faith thing, the wimpy Christians. Um, when we, we, can, we can say things like we want to live for God, but then when we encounter the slightest bit of, 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 uh, of friction to, the, to that, um, sometimes we just fall apart. And that is what God uses to strengthen us. It's just, you know, it's like the illustration of, you know, working out in a gym. It's, you know, you tear your muscles, they, they, they heal, they get stronger than they ever were. You know, next thing you know, you're super strong. Um, our faith is the same way. We get, it gets tested. And when it's tested, we get to learn a lot about how strong we really are and how much we need God. And I think uh, most of us could probably stand to be tested more than we are. But we just, we, we just have such a nice, easy life. Again, God is greater than anything this life can give or anything that death can take away. So when we suffer and when we look at the lives of those who suffer, we should never believe the lie that this suffering is because of a lack of faith. There are certainly consequences to our actions, and at times we might suffer those consequences, but God is good, God is powerful, and he is always at work. If you are at home or, or listening to this wherever, for those of you in the room, if you're suffering, don't believe the lie that, that you lack faith. God is on the verge of accomplishing something that he could accomplish no other way. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He's given us the faith. His promise is to sustain us with our faith. And he has purposes for things. And I realize that in the middle of suffering, sometimes an answer like God has a greater purpose just falls short. I know it, I know it does. And that's not my intention. I don't, I'm not trying to alleviate your pain by saying that God has a great purpose, but what I am trying to do is help you to see that there's still hope, that there are things that are happening that are outside of our purview. There are things that God is doing that we don't understand, that we may never understand. For the folks at the end of Hebrews chapter 11 said they died not receiving the promise that they were, of the inheritance that they were promised. And those people died and those people went into to be in the presence of the Lord. To live as Christ and to die is gain. That's it's more profitable for us, Paul says, that I that, that I remain here. But whether I live or die, 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's like, it's, it's similar to what Job said when, you know, when his whole world was turned upside down. Everything was taken from him, his family, his possessions, even his health. And that's not, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to, to take the, con, you know, the, the, the words, whether I live or die, um, blessed be the name of the Lord, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, out of context. But I think that in our lives, that should be our prayer more often. It shouldn't be, God, give me an easy life. It should be, God, whatever it's going to take for you to strengthen my faith, please give me that. That's a dangerous prayer to pray. It's a very dangerous prayer to pray. But just as God worked in the lives of those recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, which is kind of affectionately called the hall of faith, he still works in the same ways today. Just as he accomplished great and wonderful things then, so he does now. Just as he sustained sufferers then, he sustains us now when we suffer. He did it then, and he can still do it now, and he does still do it now. So let us desire to desire God. Nothing is more desirable to desire than God is. God is so, so good. And it's my prayer that you would know him for who he really is. It's my prayer that in the midst of this um, pandemic and all the consequences that we're, that, we're, um, that we're suffering from, you know, again, in the grand scheme of things, we still have it so good to be able to still gather and worship God, to be able to stream it online, to be able to get together with friends, which incidentally, um, I also wanted to make a quick note of while I had the opportunity to, to be here. And that is that most, most weeks, um, uh, you know, we've, we've, there's a group of about nine or 10 of us that have been here every single week. Uh, I haven't been here every week, but a lot of people behind the scenes last weekend, we went, my wife and I and our girls went over to a friend's house and we had kind of a, a watch party together. We had some brunch and then we watched the sermon together. We sang together and, um, it was, it was so much better than, than sitting in our, in our living room alone watching the service. It was really, really great. If you haven't done that yet, um, if you're comfortable, I don't want to be, I don't want to be insensitive to, to folks that are not comfortable doing that. But what I do want to say is, um, is I think one of the things that we're, that we could be tempted to lean toward right now is, is to over, overly isolate ourselves. That whether that's, in personal contact or not, we still need to be connected with other people. Um, whether that's on the phone, whether that's in person, whatever your comfortability or, resp- you know, whatever's responsible for you to do. But man, it was just so great last week when, when uh, Jay and, and Samuel were singing and we just started singing in the room and just to, just to hear, you know, all the, all the voices together. Um, I was just thinking, man, it's been a while since, uh, since I've, I've really, experienced that. And that was too bad. You know, we have the Sunday evening service. We're all so spread apart and we have masks on and everything. So it just didn't, doesn't necessarily have the same kind of intimate, intimate feeling. But in those gatherings together, it gives us an opportunity to be encouraged by each other's faith. We get to hear about, you know, what's, what's going on in each other's lives. It's all the kind of stuff that we used to take for granted. We used to do those things all the time. Um, and so I would encourage you, if, if you haven't done it yet, maybe find a few people that, um, that, that you can get together with on a Sunday morning and, and worship together, have kind of a watch party. Certainly come out um, at 7 o'clock here. We'd love to see you, um, and uh, we'd love to keep our distance from you. <laughs> Not really. We wouldn't love to, but we will, because it's responsible. So um, all that to say, 
that our job as Christians is to encourage the faith that we see in others. Where we, where we don't see faith, where we, what we want to do is we want to encourage new faith. Where we see faith, we want to see faith grow. Where we see people experiencing um, suffering through their faith, we want to encourage them to hold fast to God. We want to encourage them to desire to know God more, and we want to see that desire increased in our own lives. So as I close, I want to pray for us, and then we will move into the prayers for the people of our church. But uh, would you join me in prayer now? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much. God, we thank you that, that you know us, that you love us. God, we thank you so much for the faith that you've given to us. God, I pray that when our lives are easy, um, that we would be grateful for that. When our lives uh, are, not, are not full of difficulties, God, that, they, that we would praise you uh, for your goodness. And God, when our lives are tough, that, uh, that we would still worship you, that we would still praise you for who you are, for you, what you're accomplishing, for the mystery of how you accomplish uh, things in our lives that you could accomplish no other way. But we thank you for your wisdom, and we thank you for your love.